You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Hi, I'm Adam Rispin, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. If you're a longtime listener of the show or avid reader of our Inside Intercom blog, you know that we're big time proponents of the jobs to be done framework for innovation, a process that helps you understand the real jobs a customer is hiring your product for. The concept has been applied to physical products for a few decades now, but it's still relatively new to the software industry. We're actually one of the few SaaS companies we know who have used it, and we just published a new book, Intercom on Jobs to be Done, to share our strongest thoughts and ideas on the topic. This episode features a deep dive on jobs to be done through a conversation between our co-founder, Des Trainer and Bob Moesta. Bob is the president and CEO of the Rewired Group and a principal architect of jobs to be done theory. The conversation touches on how to dig for and uncover the job your product is actually hired for, the key forces that cause customers to switch from one product to another, and how to solve the riddle of zombie revenue. That's income you might be receiving from inactive users. Before we get into the conversation with Bob, I asked Des a few questions myself about why Jobs to be Done has been so important for our own growth at Intercom. So you, our CEO, Owen McCabe, and the rest of the Intercom co-founders made the decision to apply the Jobs to be Done framework to Intercom's product back in 2011. What was the root attraction there? Why did you guys see software as a natural place for this theory to be applied? When we first heard of the theory, it offered such immense clarity on how to identify what it is that customers want. And we had seen this clarity play out in stories such as the infamous milkshake example. But really what it appealed to us was we had spent a lot of time previously as consultants working with larger companies who were kind of crippled to this way of thinking because they were so focused on what they were on like on who they believed their, their their target customer was and they really weren't very strong on what progress people were trying to make in their lives and i think as an early stage startup which we were just four people back in 2011 it was great to have a way that let us focus specifically and exclusively on solving customer problems rather than say being concerned with the various niches or categories we were being pigeonholed into it gave us a clarity that just said let's only build things that solve the problems we believe we want to solve for our customers and so fast forward five years a lot's changed jobs has essentially shaped or touched every aspect of our business from design to marketing and we actually just released our fourth book, Intercom, on jobs to be done of all of our best ideas and learning so far throughout that process. So how would you describe the lasting impact that JTBD has left on Intercom and where should younger startups looking to apply this theory to their own product get started? The impact has really touched how we support, sell, market, price and build our product. And I'm probably forgetting about some other pieces too. Uh, Specifically with Intercom, you know, we, you know, the real realization was that people buy Intercom for more than one thing. So let us identify these individual jobs and then build around them and package the product around them and market around them, which had like, you know, incredible value, uh, both in terms of making the product easier to adopt. So we were able to sell the marketing product specifically to marketers without forcing them to believe that they had to go and talk to every other team in the company. Um, and then we were able to charge marketing, uh, price that product against like, you know, typical marketing products um, and then we were able to like when we're doing our sales team when they're having calls they know exactly the problems their pain points they want to speak to and it, as I said it, it kind of it reverberates around every part of the business uh, it really has been like a, you know, I think a transformational thing that we've decided to build the company around 
in terms of an early stage startup, uh, what I would do genuinely, I think a lot of people, a lot of early stage startups, they kind of have a vague sense of an idea uh, that, and, they, and they also know that they can do something that's cool. So they're kind of bringing a sort of maybe like if this was a cocktail, like maybe it's like 50-50 of like some sense of a customer problem and some sense of some new technology they want to work on. So they might look at a space like say sports and they might look at a technology like say bots and they might think, mm, well, let's build a sports bot. And the problem is that's either tech first or person first, but it's not job first. And what JobSpeedome will get you is this ability to sort of really laser in on exactly what the problem is. And is the problem that, you know, I, I, I want to talk to somebody about sports scores, or is the problem that I have a, you know, working conversation with my friends all about sports, and I'd love it if a bot could just chime in every now and then with, with like, the latest scores. But, like, it lets you kind of inform and build around exactly what it is you're trying to do. Rather than if you go technology first, you run the risk of being, you know, like the classic technology in search of a problem. And if you go customer first, you'd end up building a kind of sales and marketing machine, but you don't really know what you're going to do with these people when you get them. So that's kind of a lot of what you know we've seen, and certainly the startups we've worked with, we've seen it help them, just give them so much clarity on what they need to build, and and that's ultimately what we've put into this book as well. It's just like it's it really, the book is like a compilation of lessons we've learned along the way. We're kind of we're prolific about sharing things when we have these realizations, and this book is kind of our best way of of capturing it all together. Great, great, and again, the book is called Intercom on Jobs to Be Done, and with that, I'll hand things over to you and Bob Westa. Hi, and welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast. Our guest today is Bob Mesta, who's the president and CEO of the Rewired Group and also one of the core figures in the Jobs to be Done methodology. Bob, for the sake of our listeners, could you quickly introduce yourself and Rewired? Hi, Des. Yeah, so uh, the Rewired Group is a small consulting firm based in Detroit. We have basically been developing products for almost 30 years. I've developed over 3,500 products, and we basically help uh, both big companies, small companies, and entrepreneurs uh, develop and launch new products. So we're product guys at at heart. Awesome, just like us. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where did Jobs Be Done come from for you? Where it came from for me was I had the, the blessing of being able to work with a guy in the 80s called Dr. Deming. I was his intern in the, in the mid-80s. And he took me to Japan and taught me a lot of the, not only the manufacturing methods, but the development methods. And I ended up uh, connecting with people like Dr. Taguchi and other people. And one of the things that came out of it was really this notion of focusing on functions versus problems. And what you what we saw is that that as as an engineer and trying to develop things, what I found was um, people what people were saying and what they were doing were different things. And so jobs really came from this notion of the first part was what I call supply side jobs of what jobs can your product do. But then it came to realize that I needed to understand the jobs that consumers wanted to get done. And so it was this flip into the into the consumer space to realize that the marketing data I was getting just really. I couldn't connect it down to the to the technical side, and so um, jobs really was that that um, uh, the process and the and the and the rigor, if you will, of digging pretty deep to get almost interrogating consumers to understand what they really meant by stuff. And so it started in the in the in the in the late late eighties, early nineties, and then kind of formalized it uh, in the in like ninety three, ninety four when I started working with Clay. A lot of our listeners will be like me, jealous when you talk about Dr. Deming, uh, Clay Christensen, etc. You've worked with some truly incredible people in your career. Yeah, I've 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 been very it, and sometimes yeah, I just kind of uh, how did I get here kind of thing. But yeah, I I'm a firm believer of two things. I have a, what I call a three foot rule that if you're within three feet of me, I get to talk to you. So that's actually how I met Dr. Deming. Um, and the other is just always trying to help people. So Clay and I have been helping each other for. For almost 22 years. 
Wow, that's impressive. So let, let's go back to 2011, back when Intercom itself was a baby and I uh, did a podcast with you. At that time, it was kind of like the the embryonic point of like this wave of jobs to be done, if you like, as specifically as it applies to software. And you kind of identified three reasons why it was kicking off. One, you had people like Clay going around at conferences talking about it. Two, you were sort of saying a lot of software companies specifically were kind of, they were saturating their market and they were, and then thirdly, like there was this new demand for uh, growing niche markets. It's been five years. How do you see that uh, evolving? I think there's a couple of things. One is, is one, most of the stuff that we've been doing and the, a lot of the stuff prior to uh, when we met was, it was always caught under such tight confidentiality. So almost all the clients we work with, we can't talk about. I mean, you're, you're a you're a godsend in the in the sense of like you're 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 not only helping us promote it and letting me be on the radio and talk about you know how how it's helped you guys but most people once they see it they see it as such a competitive advantage it's it's literally been hidden and not not able to to, to actually talk about it and because I'm more of a product guy it's 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 almost like when I've been doing it um, it's like I just move on to the next client I think the fact is is that. It's more popular because people uh, we're, we've been doing some not-for-profit work that allows us to to talk through it. I think the other thing is time. So the fact is, is when we worked together five years ago or four years ago, um, you know, the the confidentiality wrapped around us was very very tight. Um, but as you as you uh, absorbed it all and looked at it and figured it out, it's you became looser and looser with it. So now we're able to talk about it. And so I think a lot of the things where people are willing to now share about it, uh, like uh, Quicken and, or uh, Intuit and SNHU, and and there's just a whole bo- uh, bunch of different people who are now kind of stepping forward. Um, I've been working on a book with Clay and Karen Dillon and Taddy Hall, and um, they've been actually really very helpful of going out and reaching out and finding people who. Have be willing to talk about it and so it's pretty exciting i think the 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 real switch is just people willing to come forward and say what it is and how it works right it's maybe as a as it becomes less of a secret more people are willing to speak about it i guess yeah and i think i think the other thing is that this is my own personal opinion but i just think i think a lot of the marketing theories are kind of coming to their 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 end of the s curve you know the notion of uh um talking to people, finding common words, putting them together, framing a big market, and then kind of saying, all right, how do we make an easy, fun product that everybody wants to do something with? It's, it's just there's, there, there's no way to connect it down to the real product side. So I think that that's the other side is that uh, the mass markets, I think, are, are pretty much dead. We're certainly seeing that ourselves. Um, let, let's get into some specifics for our listeners. Let's talk about maybe the interview process. So a lot of people are kind of su- surprised but when I explain how we went about finding jobs to be done for Intercom. And it is, there's a lot of actual manual work to speak to hundreds of customers, retrace their actions, work out what it was that happened in their life such that they decided, oh, I better try out Intercom or whatever. What I'd love to hear from you is like, how when you do these interviews, there's a lot there to uncover. But how do you unpack these like insights, and how do you translate what the customers are saying into like design requirements or technical requirements? Do you have a process, or what do you do? Yeah, so so the 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 key is really understanding what I call the the mechanisms of value. Like, what is the causal things that, that the thing I learned from Deming is nothing's random. Though though we have random error, the the reality is is that's our way of just saying that we don't know, and so. 
But if I walk in and, and go in with the premise that pe- something caused somebody to do something and buy something, one. And two, the fact is, is that the product or the service is only part of the solution. So it's almost getting elevation above it. What you can do is you can start to see the, the dominoes or, the, or the, the, those little causal things that have to click into place to happen. And so we're not really interested in what people are just saying. It's what they're doing or not doing and almost the energy that's going through it. So as we do interviews, it's, it's like uh, we'll do 10 interviews, but it's like having a thousand surveys. And so we find a lot of the little subtleties. And what we can do is pull out those variables that are, are crucial to having somebody, are they being pushed into the situation to get a new product or are they being pulled into it by being aspired to it? And do they have anxiety or do they have habit? And so that lens allows us to literally be almost precision to look at those forces and then understand how they pattern together. And once you realize it, I might have 75 to 100 variables, which represent millions of combinations. But when you look back at the stories, they only come together in a certain way. And so it allows us to look at a lot of things, but at the end of the day, see what really is happening in the market. And so to me, um, it's, it's, it seems like it's lengthy, but what I would say, it's, it's um, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And so the notion is that we can, that's a Marine saying that basically is if I, if I do the right work here, um, what I had a client tell me the other day that how many meetings they don't have to have because they know the jobs, because they're not arguing about stuff. And so to me, it's that translation down into really the trade-offs they're willing to make and the technical requirements. And so to me, I, I use a process basically that's put off of quality function deployment, which is another Japanese kind of method, and a lot of prototyping to get it down to the technical requirements. Right. One thing that uh, struck me as I uh, observed the interviews you're carrying out on our behalf was uh, you really are only interested in facts. Is, is that fair? Like, as in, you don't ask people their opinion of what they're doing, you only want to know what they were literally doing. I'm trying to piece together the energy. So it's like, I don't care whether they say, oh, I like this product. And we'd have to say, well, what do you like about it? And so you want to dig down to the level of what's the actual thing of why they like something or what they, what, why they didn't do something. And so to me, I'm always getting to the action. And then the emotion is, is the aspect of either the, the anticipation, the enjoyment, the, the social part. There's a whole bunch of other aspects that you still have to get down to the action, but I need to know the, the reward that they're looking for. And so I'm not worried about what they, um, their opinions pretty much at all. And actually, I don't worry about what they bought so the, the other unique part about this is it doesn't matter what they went from and to. It's trying to build a specification of the progress they were trying to make. And so most people are trying to get opinions of the product, and we're trying to find the vector of progress that they're trying to make that I can put lots of products in front of them. That brings me to, to, to another question. A lot of our uh, listeners will be for sure product fo- folks. They'll be startup folks, people who either maintain or are in the process of building a product. How, does, how do you apply jobs to be done when your product does not yet exist? The way that I come at it is that there's actually no new consumption and that, 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 that they're already getting the job done one way or another through a, maybe a different category or through, through wanting to try something. And so part of it is, and we do quite a bit, we do quite a bit of this kind of work, which is to help people find the, the analogous um, categories or products 
or situations where people are trying to make progress but they can't and that where your your technology would fit into it. And so part of it is figuring out what other um, industries to look at. So we did some work for somebody who was doing a home health care product, and it doesn't exist. And at the end, it was like, well, why did somebody buy First Alert? And why did somebody buy a, a rent a home health care person to come in and see their parents? And if we understood those contexts because they're trying to – fit into those kinds of situations, we can look at a pretty broad spectrum of other things and still the progress is the direction of progress and, and the context wrapped around that progress is literally the same that we can then say, all right, based on our technology now, what are the trade-offs we're willing to make? When you say there's no new consumption, how, how does that gel with the idea that say like something like say Snapchat has appeared in the past five, six years and people are now using it? Are you implying that they always switch from something? They always switch from something. So my thing is if, if I looked at and mapped a day of a kid five years ago before Snapchat, it was either Facebook or it was, it was Twitter, it was something else, or they were doing something else or they were doing nothing. But the reality is, is that there's no more time in the world. They can't create time. And so they're, they're choosing now to do Snapchat and not something else. And this is where it looks like it's it's almost like micro consumption, but the reality is they are not doing something else, and it's really about it's part of the the part of jobs is to understand what are they firing and what are they stopping doing, and do they want to stop doing it or do they actually miss it? <laughs> right, that, that makes sense. And then when you when you hear about like you know emerging industries, so like a popular one at the moment in the valley is like this idea of customer success. Do you would you then posit also that people are switching to customer success from something else that they they thought did the same job? from either either CRM or they, they had some other way in which they were looking at it and now they're switching, quote, platforms. And so it's to me, there's a great book called How to Fly a Horse and it talks about the evolution of innovation and that innovation is really about creation and creating things. And it's the hard work and the, and the fact that like all things are really just evolutions of another and how do we understand it? And though the business might call it a new category and the industry might call it a new category because of investment and that uh, most c- categories are created because the, the returns are different and the investment criteria are different. But the reality is, is that from the consumer side, it doesn't work that way. Right. Sticking with this sort of idea of businesses and categories, uh, something like I observe a lot is like a large company, maybe it's a category defining company, uh, they have a whole business established and they have a job to be done pretty well nailed down. They're doing it really, really well. And then at some point, some new technology comes along. Maybe it's messaging to SMS or maybe it's, you know, like chat to email or something like that. But there's some new shift. And I'd love your opinion on why is it that larger companies can't react and find a new job to be done given all the assets they have? There, there's, there's a couple of reasons. I think, I think one is to think about the momentum of the current organization. They have a current set of brands, they have current messaging, they have current things, and that what happens is, is when the job shifts or when, it, when they find a new way to make progress with a new technology and it doesn't align, what ends up happening is the company tries to end up uh, discouraging the newcomer, if you will. And it's, it's, it's what Clay lays out in, in perfectly in The Innovator's Dilemma as, as the fact this is it's almost like I have a project to go disrupt myself and the momentum of the, of the organization is so great that I want to go run some prototypes on, let's say, uh, bottles because I'm making a product. And it's like, yeah, we only order a billion bottles or nothing. 
So what happens is they end up co-opting every idea and end up not being able to deliver on the job because they're still trying to reap the scales of the old business. That's the first one. In a sense, like when, when they evolve their business based on their success, does the business become basically a big mess of assumptions about the world as it exists today so that when it changes they can't react quick enough like when you talk about a billion balls it makes sense like you know we're all set to sell books by by printing them on paper and putting them on shelves and stores and they have to be 300 pages or whatever like is there kind of all these like unspoken assumptions baked into the company and the company's view of the job well, it's not only that, but it's the business model, right? And that, and that they know how to make margin on it, and they have the supply chain set up a certain way, and they have buying scale in certain ways. And so all of a sudden when something shifts, like, well, now I don't get buying scale in printing. So if I go half printing and half digital, and now the printer is going to charge me more, I lose my margin. And so the other part of this is is what Clay and I have been uh, talking about, what we call the capitalist dilemma, which is the way that the money is, is looked at and the way that growth is put together and the metrics that people use, it becomes impossible to actually iterate and and innovate at the lower end of the market where you might make less margins, but you actually might help more customers. And you're still generating more cash, but if I made 40% margin before and there's still 30 or 40% of the market that doesn't use you and you can come up with a product that has half the margin, but you're getting at it, all of a sudden nobody will launch it. That makes sense. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Another question I have for you is, um, you often talk about, like, you know, obviously there's a lot of uh, words and phrasing you use around jobs. One of them is, like, the idea of, like, the hire, the moment when somebody makes the decision to, like, hire a product. We also talk about the little hire, which is when the customer makes the decision to use the product. Are, are these equally important or like, you know, does it depend on if your business model needs the customer to use the product? First of all, I hate the jargon, but I just haven't been able to articulate it any better. And so as, as I think that's the thing I'm most excited about is how people are going to help me with the jargon. But the big hire is like when you buy the can of uh, um, of cleaner and uh, the little hire is when you'd spray it or the, it's when they sign up for your software and the little hire is when they use it. And so what I, what I found as been a product guy, my first thing was my first love and the first place to be and where I believe real value is created 
created is in the little higher. It's, it's ultimately, I need to know the trade-offs. I need to know the performance requirements. It's, it's where they're willing to give up to get. But what I found is if I just focus on the little higher, I don't actually get into the context and I don't get into the situation. And I've developed enough products over my life where I, they're, they're awesome products, but nobody buys them. <laughs> And so you, you have to, it's one of those things where it's one more, than, more important than the other. I think you, you have to think about both and you have to realize that they're very different and that, the, and that um, you have to end up making compromises between the two and understanding the trade-offs to get there. But you need to get into the show and then you need to deliver when you're, when you're there. And so to me, though, is I believe that you can get trial, but the repeat only comes when people, when you add the value and you deliver on what, what uh, the job was, the, the little hire was. Right. So it sounds like, is it fair to say that the big hire informs a lot about, uh, say, marketing and how you speak about your product, whereas the little hire might inform more about the actual product itself and how it's used? Yeah, but I think the other part is that, that the big hire also sets expectations of delivery. And the thing is, it also sets expectations of, of, of everything wrapped around it. So if you, if, you, if you make it just about marketing, it's, I don't think it's right because it could be onboarding. It could be what you do with the past data. It could be you know, uh, um, um, reports where a little higher is, is, is almost transactional. So successful companies do both. Both, right. And this kind of speaks a lot to the value of like, you know, the phrase onboarding is used a lot in in software these days. That is like what what bridges you from your first use of a product to like being a regular, happy, recurring, profitable user, you know. Um, How do you think about onboarding there? Is it literally a bridge between the promise made at the big hire to the value delivered at the little hire? That's right. That's right. Well, and to be honest, it's helping them understand the struggles that they have to go through to get to the progress they want. Jobs is really the, the think of the process of making progress. And so what we're trying to do is onboarding is, is, is almost like the learning curve I have to go through in order to get to that piece of progress I want to make. And so for you guys, it's like, how do I learn the features? How do I know what it is that now that I'm doing this, boy, I, I can now handle 50 more clients or 100,000 more clients than I did because I've, I've had to go through this learning curve. But to me, it's part of the work. And when you're interviewing a user uh, of a piece of software, well, like, you know, is, is it a separate context or a separate interview when you actually want to talk to them about their active usage of a product versus the day they first bought it? Yeah, so so in a lot of cases, to me, uh, I've uh, I've tried to do them together, and they're hard. They're just because um, they're almost like two different. One's like a telescope, and one's like a microscope. They're just two, almost two different levels, and and. What you're really doing in the little hire is trying to figure out why they didn't do – like the interrogation is like, well, if you did that, why do you do that? You want to mislead them so you understand where they're headed. And it's almost like uh, minute by – it could be minute by minute. It could be millisecond by millisecond. In some cases, you might actually just use that ethnography to watch customers and understand the onboarding and start with that. So to me – they're, they're very different interviews in that context, but I think that, um, that the same structure holds. They're still trying to make progress. They're still trying to do something that they couldn't do before. Um, they're still hiring criteria like, why do I do this now and not or not, etc. Something you've said a few times uh, is there's no energy in a sort of habitual purchase. So what I mean by that is like when we talk about, you know, say people who uh, use Intercom, you wanted to talk to people who had recently onboarded not, uh, uh, or had recently signed up rather than people who use the product every single day because there's no energy involved in their in their hiring and you you know the simple simple example you've often offered is like 
my morning cup of coffee from Starbucks. I don't think, I don't go through from first principles what's the optimal way to purchase coffee every day. I just have a habit there. What, what is that distinction that you're making? It's not that there isn't energy there, but there's not energy to change. Right. There's not energy where they're looking to make progress. You got to remember, it's not just, and this is a, another subtlety, again, the jargon, I hate it, but it's not jobs. It's jobs to be done. Right. It's about the, it's about the thing they want to do better. And to me, that's where innovation has to be is on that edge of understanding where people want to be better and get better. And so, and where, where do I invest time to do that? And so if I ask people who just do like go for the morning coffee every time and and they've been doing it for so long, they, they actually, I don't know why they switched and I, and I don't know if they want to make progress. And most of the time they don't know and they can't tell me. But if I talk to people who switched, I'm able to actually uncover those um, underlying causes. And that, that to me is, it's like, it's the DNA is revealed in those conversations where if it's so habitual, I, I, I'm just not that good. I can't figure it out. (laughs) Right. And that kind of helps you identify, I guess, where switching moments might actually happen. Exactly, exactly. Um, something you speak about a bit, uh, even in, within this interview, is this idea that customers have a desired progress they want to make or an outcome that they're shooting for. Yeah. But you recently said on, on Twitter, I think, that um, these outcomes aren't necessarily universal. It, it, like, you know, just because one of your customers wants this, it doesn't mean they all want this. That's right. You said, you said the context matters here. Oh, right. So think of somebody saying, boy... God, I just, I, it's so much work. I, I just, you got to make it easier. And and so it's an outcome that as a product manager, you can look at. But the, the thing is, is when you unpack it, it could be the fact that, that some people don't have time. And so easier really means make it less time. Where other people are is, is effort. It's like, I, at the end of the day, I have no energy. Just make it so it's, it, there's just no effort. And they're not worried about time. And those are two fundamentally different things. And when I go to innovate around it, and I go to talk about it, the thing is, is sure, in a marketing word, they aggregate up to easy and less work. But fundamentally, I have to do very different things. And their their goal of satisfaction is like, just just make it so it's mindless versus uh, make it so when I don't have time, you can actually make up for me. And they're very different. And so to me, context and outcome are the vector of progress. Right. And so it's not just the outcome that somebody's looking for. It's almost like the starting point, what I call the reference point. It might be nothing. It might be the old product to your product or your product is something like what's what's their starting point and what's the direction and magnitude of which they're trying to make progress. That makes sense. Like would an example of context be like, you know, so you hinted at the idea of being like, you know, end of the day, I'm tired. Therefore, I just want to do something easy versus middle of the day. I'm busy. So I want to do something quickly. Right. Um, is that like, you know, how do you capture that with like, you know, if you hear like five different versions of that during interviews, will you capture all five and try to aggregate or will you just make all five points? Well, so what we do is we end up using the, that forces of progress diagram where we'll say, what are all the pushes of, of the situation that cause people to say, boy, I need to make progress. And then when the new idea comes to it, what is the outcome that they're hoping for when they see that new thing? Not what is it, but what about it will help deliver on the outcome they're seeking. And so to me, it's captured all in the forces diagram. And then what we do is it's it's either a component of one story or another story. And then we use that to actually kind of cluster what are the real understanding of the value code that that's causing people to, to make progress. Something a lot of our listeners would uh, be curious about is a phrase that I think maybe me and you coined uh, on, yeah. your, on your podcast a while yeah. ago, which is a uh, 
this notion of what I call like zombie revenue, uh, yeah. and it's this idea like of like you know dead customers walking in a sense, right? Yeah, like yeah, they're yeah. paying for your product, but they're not using it. I feel like that speaks to the little higher. But it does. What's actually gone wrong in your opinion in those situations? So uh, since uh, since the podcast, I've actually that's one of my first questions, and I actually uh, the, the clients I work with, I talk about, and I want I want to get the metric of the degree of zombie revenue, and I think it's part of it is is that it it either did the job and they moved on to something else and they've literally forgotten about it, right. or the fact is is that they don't understand what to do next with it, and so it sits there. But the interesting part to me is when you do interviews around zombie revenue of like. Well, you haven't logged in. It's like the the real question I keep asking him is like, why haven't you quit? Right. And you find a whole bunch of anxieties and you find like, well, I have a bunch of data here and I don't want to export it and I don't know what to do with it and I don't know how to save it. And what's happened is the value proposition has fundamentally changed. Like, boy, you helped me do this. And now, you know, it's over, but I don't know what to do with it and I got to keep paying for it. I've worked with people where we just acknowledge that it's changed right. and say, you know what, when you're ready, and they, they almost want to anticipate like they're coming back. But but if you actually say, let's park your account and I'll hold your data for a different fee, the, the amount of respect that they have and the likelihood they come back versus, you know what, I've been paying you for a year full price. I haven't used you at all. And there's almost resentment that builds up on zombie revenue. And so the interesting thing is, is I, I talk about is, is their one credit card payment away from being canceled. Like they, people don't know how, like the, the credit card expires and literally you lose 20% of your thing and it, like nobody even knows why. Right. So to me, the, you really need to spend the time to dig into that as a behavior. And the interesting part to me is it's not about, think of it as this way, is it not what causes them to quit, but in this case, what causes them to stay Right. And how do you reset the, 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 the value proposition to say, you know what, I'll, fine, I'll be a warehouse for a while, but remember I'm still here and I can help you when, you, when you're ready. And then there's no resentment buildup. It's interesting, I mean, to sort of transition from like the product being a source of value in consumption to being a source of value in storage. Obviously, storage moves it closer towards being a commodity of sorts. I presume the implication here is that the value is potentially less. I don't see. I don't. I don't think about it that way. I think it's about the fact that there's a lag. Like the number of people who basically have can't like they had it. They canceled the account. They went to open a new account. They couldn't open the new account because the old password, the old email was dead. They had to create a new email. There's a whole bunch of hassle factors of coming back. Right. And and that so and from their perspective, they still have a an attraction or or the notion that I need to have this in my utility belt or this is something I want to keep or I don't want to I don't want to lose it but the value is in a very different way and so what I'm saying I don't think it's actually commoditized I actually think it's about being able to to preserve what you've done and and respect that they're not trying to make the same progress as opposed to convince them to reactivate because it's their life and they're pulling things into their life and you need to be there when they're ready so is it a sense I mean these sound like the same people who hoard stuff in their houses because they can't psychologically get themselves up to like throw it away, right? Yeah, well, well. So, so for example, I had I I started uh, all my cloud stuff with SugarSync, right? Which right. Would, I was PC based and had it there, and then and then I had this problem where I shared stuff and somebody deleted something on their side, deleted on my side. It was kind of the 
it, it really didn't matter who, but it was one of those things where I have a SugarSync account. And what happens, I have a bunch of stuff up there. And, and the reality is I haven't logged into it in a while. Every once in a while I do. Um, but I have Dropbox, I have Box, I have these different places, and now I'm moving everything to Google Drive. And so all of a sudden you start to look at how these things work and you start to realize like, well, why haven't I canceled SugarSync? And it's like, in the end, I've got a lot of stuff there and I have no idea how to move it over. And the fact is, is that, that I, you know, at some point it's like, when I need to go to my PC, I still need it. So there's a value of it's my, it's my PC archive in my mind. Right. And, but, but the notion is, is because I'm not uploading, it's like I'm still say, paying the same price. And they would say, well, we can do this for you on the Mac. I'm like, yeah, yeah but it's not the same. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I guess, like in their terms, you look like an inactive, like potentially canceling user. Whereas in your, in your world, they're, just, they're doing their job just fine. Maybe they should. Uh, they're doing awesome. Yeah, exactly. They're doing yeah. awesome. Like because, I, to be honest, I don't use a PC, but there's every once in a while I go back. I'm like, oh, I need yeah. that. I'm like, oh. I, and you go there and it's there. And it's like you're doing the job. It's just that they're thinking I'm dead. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm just not adding things. We have like we have a, a, a photo sharing customer, and uh, it's funny. Like they lament one of their biggest problems is like that people aren't using their product enough. But when they went to talk to their customers, they learned that like no, it's you know it's just what people were actually genuinely buying was a nice way to like look at photos, and not a way to upload photos every single day. Right. And uh, and so like, well, there was just this mismatch between what the customers were buying and what the company thought it was selling, which I think fr- happens frequently. But think of the photo box, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, uh, you know, in the old, well, my, I'm, I'm a lot older than you, but as, as, you know, my mom would have these boxes full of photos and they'd come out, okay, Christmas, mm-hmm. Easter, and, and they get full, but at the end of the day, they, they wouldn't get looked at about two or three times a year. But the reality is, oh my God, the value of having those boxes, are you kidding me? Like, it's like just because I don't interact with it doesn't mean I don't value it. Yeah, you're not an inactive user just because you don't put no. stuff in a box every day. That, that's the thing that I that to me is really important about jobs. Is you really need to understand because we we think because it's a subscription business and because that I think we're going to see more and more of this as we 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 try to portray this subscription business model because the way the finance is funding all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I just think the reality is, is that we have to realize that sometimes a subscription model is not the right thing, and there has to be different ways in which to look at it. And the thing is, is that that it has to reflect the value that they're bringing to it. And so whether whether it becomes a yearly subscription or whether it becomes monthly, I, I think the fact is you really need to look at the value that, that the consumer is, the progress they're trying to make, and the value you bring to that progress. I definitely see a lot of that where companies have a really solid value prop, but it might be something like, we'll convert your files from one type to another. And the thing is, when I need that, I need that once. I don't need that like 15 times. Right. I don't need it, I don't need right. it every month. And yet they're, they're trying to monetize <laughs> Like as if it's a recurring need of mine, whereas I think they could actually capture right. a greater value up front if they actually if they understood that this is a spiky need and not a recurring one. That's right. And I, to be honest, I think they can charge more. It's one of those things where it's like, I'll do this for you and this. and But the fact is to keep trying to get me to do it. It's like, no, I don't have any more to give you. I don't know what to tell you. You want me to go create? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just kind of ridiculous. Okay. Last piece is very simple. Uh a lot of our listeners uh, read a lot of our works, a lot of your writing about jobs we don't. Yeah. How do you, how does one dip their toe in? Should they start with a customer interview? Should they start with understanding, looking at their current customer base? Yeah, I, I, it, it always to me starts with an interview. Like uh, an interview is where like understanding. And again, the hardest part is when you talk to your customer, almost pull out your product name. Right. And and to be honest, it's actually easier to do an interview on a competitor's product and understand. 
what caused them to buy the product. And what you'll realize is that it's not the product or it's, it's, it's a lot about the context and a lot about the outcome. It's not, and the product just happens to fit in that situation. So um, in Japan, they, what they taught me was how do I come up with requirements that are uh, technology independent? Meaning, how do I actually understand where I could actually put 10 technologies in there? And so ultimately, Jobs is about trying to get the right altitude to see your customer and understand the different lines of value that they're seeking. And then you could actually come back with better products that lower cost to make more money. Right. So in the short term, like we start with talking to a, either your own customers or competitors' customers, yeah. but it's specifically drilled into this abstract definition, like as in abstract away from your actual, take the product out of it yep. and talk about the need. Yep, and, and, then, and, and dig, and dig down to, dig down, like, so again, they'll say it's too much work. You got to say, what does that mean? Well, you know, it's too much energy. Well, what does that mean? Like, well, I don't have the mental energy to do it versus, boy, it's just too many, too many moving parts versus, boy, it's just too much time. And you, what you realize is until you get down to the action, of what these words mean, especially as a developer, I don't know what to do. Right. I, I really don't know how to help. And so those are the things that why these, these interviews are so important. Something you taught me was to hate the words. Uh, I think fun and cool are your two least favorite yeah, words. Oh, in dude, yeah, yeah. That, those are horror. Like, yeah, easy is now becoming the uh, number three. It's just like, oh, I just want it easy. Like, what? okay, yeah, yeah. what does that mean? It's just so many definitions of it. And there's so many ways, you know, my, my part is, uh, the technical people are so competent that they literally can run and come up with a hundred ways to make it easier. But if I don't have a clear definition, we go round and round and round and round. And it's just brutal. Just brutal. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bob. It was great to catch up with you again and hear, hear about your thoughts. Oh, thank, thank you for having me on. And, and uh, thank you for all you guys do. And congratulations on your uh, next round of fundraising. And just keep up the good work and love the product. We'll do our best. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.